0: Hi everyone, just a quick note before this episode. We recorded this a day before the revised guidance regarding the Student and Exchange Visitor Program was announced. Since then, Johns Hopkins and several other institutions, including MIT and Harvard, have filed federal lawsuits in support of their international students. While we know this is an extremely difficult time for many, we hope the perspective highlighted in this episode can serve as a point of connection, not only for career development, but also on what some of our friends and colleagues may be experiencing right now. Thank you for listening. welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Jenna Glatzer, editor of the transcript for Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with my co host
1: I'm Roshan Chikerman, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network.
0: Today, our guest is Dr. Roshni Rao. Originally from India, Dr. Rao received her bachelor's of science in microbiology, chemistry, and botany from St. Joseph's College at Bangalore University, as well as a postgraduate diploma in science from the University of Otago in New Zealand. Dr. Rao then received her Ph.D. from the University of South Carolina, Columbia, in biomedical sciences, studying the therapeutic effects of marijuana on staphylococcal and teratoxin B infection. Following her Ph.D., Dr. Rao completed a postdoc at the FDA as an immunologist, where she studied the immunogenicity risks associated with biologics and biosimilars. After her postdoc, Dr. Rao was the Associate Director of Postdoctoral Affairs for the National Institute on Aging, where she led numerous initiatives aimed to improve professional development programming and well-being for postdocs at the NIA. She currently is the inaugural director of the Futures program from Johns Hopkins University. Roshni, thank you so much for joining us on the program.
2: I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So just to start, can you talk a little bit about what the Futures program is and what your mission is as the director?
2: Yeah. Um, so, Futures, like you mentioned, is a inaugural professional development and career education office accessible to all grad students, postdocs, and alumni at Johns Hopkins University, and it focuses on training PhDs and postdocs to be better prepared, ready, and confident for a number of career paths. Um, we often find, and I'm aware because I've been there, that we get great academic training in our graduate schools and postdocs, but Sometimes we tend to neglect the other skills, uh, translational and relational skills. So this is what we help students at the office learn to discover and to put into practice. And so I just want to specify that the emphasis of the office is not just procuring any job, but hopefully landing a job that one will find fulfilling. So we do this by introducing our students to the concept of life design. Um, and, and in addition, the overarching goals of the office as it develops further, is to include experiential learning and mentoring as part of the program as well.
0: Can you talk about what life design is and how it relates to your career as a scientist?
2: Basically, life design concept originated out of Stanford, California, and it was designed um, by two designers, actually, Dave Evans and Bill Burnett, based on a book. And it essentially tells you to do a few things. Get curious which is what we would translate into going on informational interviews, asking people uh, questions. Radical collaboration, collaborate with other people, talk to other things, try stuff, pick projects that will allow you to meet other people because at the end of the day, when you're transitioning into other jobs, the number one most important aspect of doing that is the people who will help you uh, through that process whether through advice or through relationship building that will lead to an informational interview that will then lead to a job. And um, the other one is sort of a bias to action. Like you figure out a way in which how your interests, your values and your skills can be connected. So it's all about connecting the dots and it's all about figuring out how you can design a life that utilizes your strengths and your personality to doing something more fulfilling. Your personality factors into the kind of job that you want to do as well. Uh, For me, for example, when I was trying to figure out if I should be a reviewer at the FDA, I spoke to a lot of people. I asked them insightful questions like, what does the day-to-day look like? What do you like about the job? What do you not like about the job? And I couldn't relate to that job. So I knew that in not being able to relate, I'm not going to enjoy that particular path. And for me, it was easier to eliminate that path from my list of paths that I could end up on. On the other hand, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew that I wanted to uh, be creative always. I knew I wanted to engage and and mentor. So for me then, you know, it it narrowed down into consulting and career services. So it's a very sort of, for for a lot of people that comes very instinctively. Uh, It requires a lot of self-reflection. It requires a lot of self-awareness. And I think I've applied it to myself um, as a PhD and postdoc. Uh, For example, I knew, going into grad school, that I didn't want to only be at the bench. I just knew it as I was going along. Luckily for me, the life design concepts of get curious, try stuff, radical collaborations occurred in the form of really being involved in a lot of student organizations on campus. I was the president of the Graduate Students Association, Indian Student Organization, International Student Association. Like, I did all these other things that at that moment I didn't consider would factor into my like, career and my life. And so when I wanted to transition out of bench work from the postdoc to other careers, really falling back on that internal compass that told me what my interest was, um, that led me to the path that I'm on right now. So that, in, in essence, that's the, uh, what life design does for people. It's usually like listening to that internal compass, but you wouldn't know what you're interested in if you didn't try stuff. So that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, so just to backtrack, can you talk a little bit about your really early background and how you got interested in science and what made you want to go to graduate school in the first place?
2: So, surprise to many, I wasn't always interested in science. In fact, I had so many diverse interests growing up. I had a fascination for animals, short stories, English literature, music, debate, sport, like jack-of-all-trades, like interested in all sorts of activities, but not particularly one. I I feel like I participated in almost all extracurricular activities that now I believe truly helped me narrow down my interests as I grew older. Um, So growing up in school in India, I I was good at two things. I was good at English literature and biology. So I think I naturally gravitated towards uh, biology in college. And as you mentioned earlier, I graduated with microbiology and chemistry. But from there, I I kind of figured out that I really loved immunology. And I found myself at the University of Otago in the laboratory of uh, Dr. Vernon Ward, and he's a virologist. He's quite famous as well um, in in, in New Zealand, England. And so he was the kind of PI who wasn't afraid to get into the lab with us and demonstrate how to make the perfect SPS gel or be uh, really honest with us about how to work to our strengths and how to improve upon our weaknesses. Like I've never had experienced mentorship like that. So he was my first real good example of the role the mentorship plays in motivating and developing young scientists. So because I admired him and I admired the way he was teaching us science, I admired his curiosity, I was inspired to become a scientist as well. So um, I think that it just it was just a path I followed. And then that led to wanting to then pursue a PhD um, in the United States. So I decided to come to the USA because I had spent all two perfect years in New Zealand and I just wanted to experience another country. So I sort of stumbled my way into applications based on Google searches of good immunology labs. Um, and that's when I, so I sort of found this immunology department at the University of South Carolina, and I ended up there. So, so the lab had a number of um, inflammatory animal models like MS or toxin-induced lung injury. Uh, I would administer a bacterial toxin called staphylococcal enterotoxin B, and that would wreak havoc on the lungs of the mice. Um, lot of inflammation. So then we administered THC and we've had anecdotal evidence of of marijuana compound delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, the active psychoactive compound being anti-inflammatory. I mean, we've seen how the cannabinoid industry has sort of blown up. And so we gave THC and ameliorated sort of the inflammatory response. And in fact, the marijuana compound was able to induce anti-inflammatory cell types, immune cell types in response. So, we really delved into those immune cell types and uh, studied about the effects of various microRNA as it pertained to the immune system and found some really cool results. In that laboratory, graduate students were pretty independent. We ordered all our reagents, um, my experiments. We did all our experiments ourselves. Um, we authored papers and submitted it ourselves. So, the whole process we sort of learned and, and encouraged to figure it out ourselves. And that's where. Um, that's where the mentorship of senior graduate students really came to play. And I say this because that was another experience that led me to understand that I really like mentoring and helping other people because we were, we were expected to do that for junior grad students as well.
1: So you didn't make the switch directly from India to the United States. You spent a few years in New Zealand doing some research there. What was that transition like for you? And did being in New Zealand help with the transition to American culture?
2: Yeah, oh, good question. I, you know how you have to press those little buttons on the street to cross so the light changes? I literally had no idea that that existed. When I went to New Zealand, my roommate, my first day, I was pressing the button when she was trying to show me the town. And I was like, what is this? And then the, I went into the lab, like within um, the first week, I went to the lab, and everyone in the lab was pipetting using a handheld pipette. I'd never seen one of those before because in my undergrad we were still in chemistry lab doing mouth pipettes. I never used it before. I had such major imposter syndrome when I walked into the New Zealand lab. I, I I I I still can feel the trauma of just being so new in a foreign country and not knowing like basic stuff that I uh, that I ought to know. All my other you know colleagues and students in my class had had three years of experimenting and sort of knowing what the terminologies were, I had to start from scratch. To make it worse, as I went there, the head of the department in New Zealand said to me, um, since you've come come from India, there's going to be a one-year trial period and you have to prove that you can do well in class and then we will like promote you to the research project or whatnot. So there were conditions associated with my performance in New Zealand in order to continue because they assumed that because I'd come from India, there was a big gap. So what I did was I I literally just would go back from class, go home, lock myself up in my room, and we had like up to five to six roommates um, in the international house I lived at, and really study like all aspects of microbiology and immunology from scratch. It's like I had to learn everything that I had learned in India, I had to relearn them. I learned from scratch. Um, really like studied my butt off. And then I was top of the class, like it was amazing. Um, but just, you know, just that, that 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 drive to prove that I could do it um, helped me for sure because it was a huge learning experience. And it was a huge um, moment of like resilience building, I feel uh, during that period. So when I came to US, it wasn't so much of a shock. I was better prepared every bit of experience counted towards building confidence and building resilience and then building independence, which I then utilized, I think, in the US, which then in turn encouraged me to feel like I could participate in all these student orgs and I, I there was something of value that I could provide and that I could learn something. So yeah, you're right. So it, it definitely was a good stepping stone. Although New Zealand culture is way different from uh, the U.S. culture. Um, also, I was very sequestered in New Zealand in an international house. Which was every person from all countries, we all lived in the same place. Uh, so then when you come here, the U.S., it was different because it was very individualistic that I didn't have that sort of community to fall back on. So I had to figure out how to make friends and everything from scratch. So while it helped, also it was very different.
1: How did you make the decision that you wanted to go from India to to New Zealand and also to the United States? Because there are a lot of things associated with that. For instance, you, your family, you mentioned it was a while before you could go back and visit your family again. And there are other things associated with a decision like that. How? What was your thinking in that?
2: Um, partly, it's the thinking of many middle-class Indian folk. Uh, is like we have to send our kids to another country to study. It's like a matter of like, that needs to be done in order for them to have a better life. And at that point, all my friends um, uh, after like, high school were trying to find liberal arts colleges in the United States to come and you know, start their undergrad degrees. But it was very, very expensive, and we couldn't afford it. So out of you know, calculating all the expenses, New Zealand just seemed like a better option. Um, we went to this agency that helps students go to different countries. And out of all those, we narrowed it down to the fact that the University of Otago has an amazing microbiology and immunology department. And that decision was made. We took out loans. So that was the thinking behind it. And then also the only sort of choice I had was a, a cheaper education rather than a more expensive. So, so that's why I went to Zealand. When I was doing all those various things in graduate school, I hadn't gone back home as an international student for five years. Not once had I gone back in five years. So now that's why wellness has become very important to me and, and sharing that with PhDs and postdocs is try to prioritize your mental and physical well being, like worked out, meditation. Um I would recommend doing that.
0: Yeah, you bring up a great point too. And this is something I've heard echoed among friends where if they are trying to come to the U.S. to study and they have the resources to pay the tuition, they are at a huge advantage compared to people who do not have the resources and are trying to come to the U.S. And I think that's you know along the lines where you see how immigrants are represented in media. This is also a huge misconception is that it is extraordinarily difficult.
2: Absolutely. I mean there's a lot that your parents are sacrificing for you to to go have that better life as an international student um it, and it, this is these are not numbers that are just ordinary numbers a fees for international students obviously are way higher than for for the rest of the students as well so there's a lot that sort of goes into the behind the scenes work of getting to come here uh, like i said we had to take out loans from various banks and you had to calculate like interest rates and uh which ones are cheaper you know how in how many years can i pay off this loan then it's the all the paperwork that goes into it the immigration paperwork the, our cities like most of the cities have to be able to travel to another city in order to go for the visa interview and so you it's a new city that you have to go to for a couple of days and then that particular city just closest to mine so hot, so hot, um, humid. So you have to stand in a line early in the morning. Starts at six a.m. You wake up, you go there. You have to make sure you know your everything. You're wearing like proper clothes. You're not wearing. You're not. You don't look too forward. You look conservative enough, but not conservative enough. Like hide your tattoos, hide your hide your piercings, whatnot, uh, because you don't know how the immigration officer at the door is going to perceive you. And then the whole time you say bye to your parents or whatnot. You go into the immigration interview. And you're wishing, oh, I hope I get this person at the window because they just seem more friendly. Whereas that person just seems grumpy, and you know it's just a very stressful process. And so you go in there, you 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 show your documents, and your documents have to be placed in a particular order because they're seeing so many people, they're grumpy if things don't are not in order. And then if they are in order and their mood is good, great, okay, you can get a stamp on your visa, or whatnot. Otherwise, they send you back, and there's more waiting. Um, there's some single document missing. For example. For me, uh, my birth on my birth certificate, my name was missing because in India we in some of us we don't name our children until much later. So the original birth certificate had my name missing. It, it, everything else stated it was me, and so I had to go back and 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 be sent back. And then there's more waiting. And meanwhile, you know, people are the school is waiting for you to respond, and you're like, when are you starting? And it's like a lot of stress. Um, I remember just not being able to sleep at night, waiting, and then checking the, the, the website to refresh it to see if there's been a change in status because it will tell you that it's been processed, your passport being been ch- shipped. Then comes a time where you have to find a travel agent and then you talk to the travel agent and see what's the cheapest flight, shortest flight, you know, longest flight. Um, some people have never been on a plane. I had never been on a plane before uh, when I first come to New Zealand. So there's a lot of like emotional pressure prior to coming. And then when you land, you know, like I said, I didn't even know what that little button was to change the light. So there's a lot of learning process um, involved, a lot of stress. A lot of people get homesick, and some of them are leaving like boyfriends or families or you know whatnot behind. Um, and so that's that additional toll that I don't think people people sort of pay attention to, or don't know, I suppose. Um, and we don't tend to share um, that aspect of what it is to be an international student.
1: Were there some mentors that sort of helped you to integrate or helped you along the way um, in getting through some of these other aspects of immigration?
2: I think I found my community through being involved in the International Student Organization. Uh, I think that's what drew me to those organizations too. I always go to places where I can relate to people. Um, so being part of the, the president of the Indian Student Organization, there were many, many, many others over 500 of us who had just been through that. Um, Some of us had the luxury of being in another country before we came to the U.S., so the transition wasn't that hard, but some of us hadn't. So I think finding that support system was very important uh, for us, and we did a lot as an organization to help incoming new international students as well, housing, take them to the Indian store, things like that. These, These organizations do a lot of, Uh, At the University of South Carolina, there was a fantastic international student office. So those offices also play a huge role in bringing people together and and providing that support. I think I found uh, a couple of mentors there, a couple of friends they became uh, at the international student office.
0: So I wanna talk a little bit more in depth about the job application landscape and just barriers to entry faced by international students in particular. And can you just give an overview of some of the different relevant visas that, you know, someone who is a student versus transitioning into the workforce for a highly skilled position might be applying for?
2: Sure. So as a student, most international students will be on an F1 visa, which is a student visa. And after F1 visa, if you're a STEM student, uh, you can apply for what is called as optional practical training or OPT. And that's a one-year OPT. So 90 days prior to you graduating, you apply for an OPT. It's like a work permit. And so you can, if you have that work permit, you can get employed uh, either as a postdoc or an industry um, or in academia or whatnot. Then if you're in STEM, you can get a two-year extension of that one-year OPT. So that OPT could last for three years, again, if you're a STEM person. If you're a humanities person, you have a one-year OPT. So options become even more limited. Then when you're, when you're considering what next after an OPT, some of the options that you have are a company that sponsors your H-1B visa and H-1Bs are lottery-based systems. So H-1B, or you could go as a scholar, like if you want to be a postdoc, you can go on a J-1 visa. A J-1 visa is a non-immigrant visa, which means you have to go back to country. For most countries, um, for example, for the majority of the countries, you have to go back after your J-1 unless you get a two-year, uh, you get a J-1 waiver. Uh, a waiver process is another process that you have a paperwork that you put in and you have to get like, permission from your country. It's called a no-objection statement, and then you need permission from the U.S. Uh, Department of State, and then you get that exception, and then you can stay longer in the country if you get that waiver. But then from J-1, there are very limited options. You can then get sponsored again for an H-1B. A third option is you could um, get a green card. And the green card process obviously takes a whole bunch of time. It depends on the country that you're from. And in the, within the green card element, you have different subsections of green card. One is you could be a self-petition uh, where you could, you could have extraordinary, extraordinary abilities. You can, based on your citations, you can apply for it or you could get married to someone if you're an OPT and then get a marriage-based screen card, things like that. There's also something called O-1, which is an extraordinary ability visa, which uh, very, it's a very rare visa that not many people get, but some companies are willing to do that sponsorship as well for very talented um, folks as well. So there are some options, but you have to know these options before going into different uh, sectors. For example, I was at the U.S. FDA, which is government, for my postdoc. And going into that, I didn't realize how limited my FDA options would be. There was only one path that I could get into from from the visa visa that I had. Uh, Luckily, during the whole tenure of my postdoc, I got a green card. And even with the green card, because I'm not a U.S. citizen, I was able to only get a reviewer position at the FDA. So my path's really narrowly. It just, it just narrowed down drastically, uh, which is what made me reconsider other careers, um, in addition to having already eliminated the FDA as a potential career choice for myself. Uh, sometimes, as an international student, you feel like you're working from within a box. But I always tell students, like you need to be able to carve out little doors for yourself early on within that box itself. There are various options, but you need to know what those options are in advance. I didn't, I, and I, the only reason why I like to help others is because I didn't know the options. I just sort of suffered through the consequences of being ignorant about them and then learned the hard way and then panicked. It added so much stress on myself. Didn't invest, didn't do some investigation because you get so wrapped up in your lab work, in your, your postdoc, in your, your research work. It slips away, time slips away. And then next thing you know, you have to really confront the whole visa immigration issue.
1: So you mentioned that there are certain factors that are required for attaining certain types of visas. For instance, you need sponsorship uh, by an employer. Um, And I love the analogy of um, creating doors for yourself. So are there specific strategies or things that people can do to start as early as possible to create those doors for themselves?
2: Good question. And yes, looking back, I think, like I mentioned earlier, Having done all those extra, extra things early on really paid off. So I would say to create and carve those doors, you have to start early. I think international folks have to realize that you can leave it up to the last minute. Very often uh, in my job right now, uh, as Director of Futures, or even my previous job, a postdoc would come at the last minute, like one month left over for their visa looking for jobs. And it's just panic station all around, and it's quite impossible to help because We don't have much control over the whole visa situation. So let's start with what we have control over, which is investing in ourselves early on, build knowledge, learn what are the different kinds of visa options available to you. Learn about yourself. What are the kinds of things that really, you know, that you like and you dislike? How would you know whether you dislike or like something? Ask questions, interview people, have these informational interviews early on, eliminate paths that don't resonate with you. Try internships. If internships are possible possible during your grad school, try certain internships. It doesn't have to be paid. They can be unpaid. Uh, Join student organizations. Do something extra on your resume, because very often your resume will only list research work, whereas someone else will have research work plus leadership experience, co-president, president, president, vice president, things like that. You don't always have to be president, vice president. You can be be part of a committee. Um, I think there's a need to self-advocate. No one else is keeping track of our immigration timelines. Yes, there are fantastic international offices that will send you reminders and our resources for you to go and talk to, but they're not keeping track of your personal immigration timeline. Um, And I know this from my own experience, I didn't keep track and then time had just passed. Um, I I think talk to people, um, build relationships, we tend to isolate ourselves a lot during our PhDs, um, especially international students who feel like they may not have that sense of community or homesick. Talk to other people, find like-minded folk. Don't isolate and reach out for help. Um, ask other people for help. At Hopkins, folks are lucky to have two sort of career offices for the two two campuses, um, East Baltimore and Homewood. Reach out for help. Ask and ask early. Come to events. We organize workshops and career panels and things like that. And very few people will go if they're in their first or second or third years. And everyone will be who's in the fifth year will go to them. I think start early in your first and second years, and then you can you already know science policy is not for me, or maybe a career in FDA is very limited, and things like that. Um, and and I think that one thing to know when I'm giving this advice to international people is this is not accomplished. I'm not asking you to accomplish this all in the last year. I'm saying do it gradually, little by little over the next few years. So it doesn't feel that overwhelming. Uh, I know that it's hard to do this in addition to your work. Because we're always thinking about our experiments and papers and manuscripts. And there's expectations in the PIs and and families and things like that. Um, So find a way to manage your time and your own expectations. And I want to emphasize that it's very, very normal to feel lost. Completely normal. Um, Even those that are not international folks feel lost. Um, uh, Even those that have sort of narrowed down one or two paths will always question if that path is going to be for them. Um, It's normal also while going through the job application strategy process to be rejected, to get rejected as you apply, and that it's it's part of the process. Um, It becomes then very important to focus on your mental well-being. And I say this because. Again, I've been there. Um, you start to question, why did I even get a PhD? Why do I have a postdoc? No one wants to employ me. Am I good enough? You know things like that. You need to just take a step back and refocus on what you are good at, and what you bring to the table, and take it step by step. And, and you understand that there are some things that are totally out of control, but there are some things that we do have over control. And let's work within that those parameters, and let's explore within those parameters.
0: Yeah, to touch on some of the things that are... Maybe outside of control first, like things like sponsorship and little things like that, where there is a caveat of yes, but it comes with the stipulation versus yes, you can hire me right now.
2: Yeah, and it's very discouraging when you're applying and you see those stipulations because the job description could look perfect for you. And then there's that stipulation at the end of the it's a, It's always at the end of the job description too. you get excited and then you leave. So, yeah, so there is that stress. Um, I think. Again, identifying companies that that sponsor early on is is helpful. Um, Especially for me, I have a lot of engineers and and scientists. So there are some companies that if you're the right candidate and they need the right candidate, they're willing to sponsor for the right candidate, identify which of these companies do that. lately I saw a couple of companies on LinkedIn specifying that they don't. Well, that's okay. Then there's another competitor company that will. Uh, So I think being flexible uh, to the the companies and to the options, the institutions that do sponsor is important. I feel it's okay sometimes also we have this idea, this vision that that's the company we want, that's the role, that's the title. It's okay to be flexible to the title as well. Um, uh, Have these conversations with the recruiters. Most often the recruiters are just trying to fill the right candidate for that position. Apply, ask, have the conversation, follow up. Like you'll see on LinkedIn on the job section who the recruiter is most of the time. If you can, then LinkedIn will help you track down who a recruiter for that company is. Ask that question beforehand. For example, I went through a whole interview process, application process up until the job offer, only to find out at the job offer stage. And I initiated that conversation. They only take US citizens, even though I had a green card. So that was my bad. I didn't ask early on through the process whether you would accept a green card. I didn't, I should have also asked and they should have also mentioned. So so have those conversations early on, identify the companies and institutions that do um, sponsor, uh, know what your different options are, okay? If the green card is in an option, could you go H1B or do you have what it takes to ha- go on an O1 visa? If so, then many immigration lawyers will give you like a free consultation in the beginning. See if you have the funds, I would say, to even go through the immigration process, uh, it can be very expensive to process a visa. If you're employing a lawyer, if, you know I had to pay over $7,000, $8,000 um, to go through the whole green card application process. So again, it boils down to really knowing, having the knowledge to make the empowered decisions. The more you know, the more you know early, the better you'll be able to make the decisions later on. Um, And these are exactly the things I didn't do during during my time. So this is what I focus on and telling others as well.
1: So in a face-to-face interview situation where this topic has not been brought up previously, how do you approach the situation? I'm putting myself in the shoes of um, someone that would need to go through this. And I'm thinking if I bring it up at the beginning, that immediately brings up uh, a barrier for this person to employ me. I want to instead talk about my skills um, and leverage, you know, my skills and experiences because I would be a good fit for the job and then later have the discussion. But at the same time, I don't want to uh, devote a bunch of energy and time to something that will ultimately not work out because they don't offer sponsorship. So how can you go about doing that just in a face-to-face interview asking about it?
2: You hit the nail on the head. You have to lead with your skills and your qualifications. You have to sell yourself like you would sell yourself anyway. Um, That's the advice. I say never put off the recruiter by saying on the phone, hi, yeah, I'm interested in this job. Do you sponsor a visa? First, sell yourself. The reason why the recruiter has called you or has seen your profile on LinkedIn or seen your application is because you look interesting to them. Sell what is interesting to them, but because of my experiences and because I see other people having these similar experiences, That conversation has to occur within the first two calls,
0: first three calls. So speaking of uh, skill sets, I know a lot of, and this is especially true for like graduate students or biology PhDs and postdocs, where a lot of the fellowships that, you know, people traditionally apply for from the NIH are not accessible to international students. And so what are some of the things that people can do to still make themselves competitive candidates and to still add these sorts of experiences and skills onto their resume, like grant writing and applications and designing experiments, all things that, you know, if you want to stay in the scientific field, you need, what other options are there? And what can people still do to make themselves really competitive candidates?
2: That's a good point. Um, There are many fellowships and and applications not eligible for I mean, K99 international people can do but many of the other grants they're not you know it's not available to international folk. Um, however there is a list if you look online there are lists of fellowships that anyone can apply to you just have to you kind of have to look but you said it you said it already is do extra stuff which is if you do if you go and partake in a grant writing course that's offered through your institution or through your laboratory or whatnot, make sure that, that you don't avoid putting that on your resume. Any extra piece of information that you can use on your resume, you, you add. There's nothing that's off-limit. There's no experience that you should consider just chucking out. Put it on there. I say put all your experiences on there and then edit and trim according to the job at hand. Um, so, so so find like, extra ways, Coursera, uh, any certifications or courses. When I was at the FDA, I couldn't do in-FDA things. So I I went outside of the FDA, the U.S. pharmacopoeia, and I did certifications there. So uh, I did an online reviewer's course that was available to everyone. Otherwise, things in the FDA is not available to everyone. So I did things that were available, and I put that in my resume as well when I was looking for FDA positions in particular.
0: In response to the recent visa restrictions and restrictions on extension and new applications of green card, holders and H-1B visas. Um, You had published a quote online. I thought it was really
2: touching, and I think it speaks to a lot of people's experiences and feelings. One thing I want to specify, and and it's important to specify for anybody who employs international PhDs in their labs, is that international students and postdocs are very multidimensional. We come from various backgrounds, have very interesting stories, various talents ambitions. Um, I like to specify that because one of the challenges of coming from an international background, especially in, into academic environments, is that we quickly shrink into the narrow box of being that student from India, or that student from China, or that student from Brazil, working on that research project. And that's the extent of how many advisors even will just view the person as a pair of, of hands. I want to specify that, you know, There are folks who have various things, like various interests and hobbies, um, and yet, you know, we're expected to put in long hours into our work. Um, Sometimes, since you're fluent in another language, the assumption is that you're clueless about what's happening around you. I recently had a student apply for a position that I'm, I'm hiring for, say, I speak slow and I don't have an accent. Yes, but you know I broke my heart because there's that assumption that because of my accent that I'm not able to to communicate effectively, accent does not equal lack of intellectual ability or things like that that students have to face that other people might not be thinking of. It's that assumption that just because I'm from a particular country that it's you know, i'm just, I just don't know what's going on, so it's emotionally challenging for many students um, I think to adjust to that expectation, including like the pressures we put on ourselves to prove our hard work and prove that we belong all the time. So so I think with the recent executive order as well, it's important to highlight some of the behind-the-scenes emotional toil that um, students go. And yes, I posted on my LinkedIn, and I'm, I, can, I can sort of talk about the main points. I said uh, that a lot of people are currently stating that the executive order will affect science, productivity, and the economy but that's true. The emotional toll, however, on the international trainees is really what we should be focusing on. How are you doing? How is this affecting you? How is this affecting your families? Because behind the scenes, there's so much that goes on. And so I want to say, and I want to specify to all international students and postdocs is that you belong, you have value, you have something to add. I mean, you wouldn't be, you know, people wouldn't match you up if you didn't have the sort of skill set and the values that you bring to the
0: table is there anything related to futures or in your office that you would like to promote or advocate
2: sure i can't believe today a uh, monday will be six months since my role at futures and there's so much more to do and so much to grow in the last three months we've had 14 workshops 11 career panels uh, different paths different people coming um um, mentoring an aspect, four hundred students connected to twenty-five mentors, you know, things like that. That I feel we can only grow. Uh, for the fall, get excited! Uh, we have a PhD conference on November twelfth. That we're putting together committee right now to to plan. It's going to be a virtual conference, and we're hoping to get some amazing speakers um, for this conference. And it's the Futures Office in conjunction with the PDCO. We're doing planning this together. And then as far as homeward and futures is concerned, we're doing a hiring event focusing on a lot of global companies. So I'm going to be working on making some global connections with companies soon. So that if people think of of, of you know leaving the US and wanting to go and have careers outside of the US too, we should be able to provide that opportunity. So a hiring event in the fall as well Um, and hoping to grow the office to be able to include internships and mentoring platforms and things like that. So stay tuned. I mean, futures is everywhere, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, email, uh, we're everywhere. Roshni, thank you so much for joining us
0: today. You know, not only sharing your perspectives on career development, but also just giving us one example of what it's like to be an international student. And I really think it's going to speak to experiences of a lot of people really thank you just so much for joining us today
2: thanks jenna and roshan for having me thank you for joining
0: us don't forget to follow hopkins biotech podcast on social media at facebook instagram linkedin or twitter and for updates about upcoming guests please visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes i'm jenna glatzer
1: and i'm roshan chickerman
0: thank you for listening